podcast this week, we enjoy a no snow with J.A. Bayona, director of Society of the Snow, and get into a boat full of boys with Joel Edgerton, Steady. star of The Boys in the Boat. All this and more on the movie podcast that is still writing the wrong year on every form available, probably continue to do so for at least several weeks to come. Hello, pod. I'm Helen O'Hara and Happy New Year. Uh, the eagle-eared among you may have noticed that I am not Chris Hewitt, uh, who I'm afraid is having something called a desperately needed break. Leave me alone, you hyenas. Haven't I done enough? Um, but fear not, because I am still joined by one colleague of such lethal cunning. Woohoo! It's the grumpiest man in TV or film, unless maybe he's turned over a brand new leaf for 2024. Am I in a 24 state of mind? Um, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling 22. Oh wow, James so, Dyer. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not updating my calendars. I'm staying there forever. Yeah. I don't know. I like. Is this going to be an exciting brand new year? Do I have any resolutions? Possibly. And well, no. Um, <laughs> you know, we'll see. My gym is trying to force me to have a resolution. They've they've brought in something called an accountability program. Jesus. And they're going to be like keeping track of our exercise and trying to push us to do more. And they've asked for some of my vital statistics. I might may give them a small figure of an asterisk character. Um, but uh, <laughs> that's a really obscure joke. I apologize. It's good. I like it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but uh, but yeah, that that's kind of terrifying. I mean, I know it's good for me. I know I should embrace it, but also I don't want to. Is it is this like a cat size? situation. Do you remember that anthology Stephen King thing from the 80s where it's about giving up smoking? Yes. Yeah, that's right. And they start by putting the cat in the cage and then his wife goes in the electric cage and then they cut off the next thing is they catch him smoking again, they cut off the wife's finger. Ah. And it's like and it, it gets progressively more just traumatic and disturbing until he gives up smoking. Is that what your gym is essentially going to do to you? I mean, I hope not. That sounds horrible. If you come in with like nine fingers, then it, either it's a kind of a big sort of Joe Abercrombie stand thing you're doing mm -hmm. or... Your gym is taking this to the My next level. My gym has really, really stepped up a notch. Well, let's hope not. Apart from anything else, it would make it terribly difficult on the rowing machine. And I hope they realise that. Please don't cut off my fingers. Oh, God. Oh it's God. just occurred to me. Yeah. Chris isn't here, which is a perfect opportunity in this in this 2024 environment for you and I to geek out about fancy books. Because I bring this up because I read a fantastic one over Christmas, Ooh. which I would like to recommend. And it is The Shadow of the Gods by John Gwynne. And it is glorious. Ooh. It is a Norse myth-inspired fantasy where there's loads of war bands and there's people who are essentially, they call them tainted, but they have the blood of the old dead gods in their veins. Uh -huh. And they're kind of outcasts and they're kept as thralls and slaves, but obviously they have powers and stuff. Natch. But yeah, and it's got a bunch of different narratives. It starts, oh, it's an absolute banger from the get-go and it just gets better and better. It's a sequel, uh, The Hunger of the Gods, uh, which I'm going to be starting next. Wow, okay. So that is my fancy book recommendation for you. What did you read over Christmas, Helen? Do you know what? I didn't read very much fantasy. Isn't that appalling? Um, it is I appalling. read Kurt Sittenfield's book, Romantic Comedy, which was, as it suggests, a romance in a comedy world. Um, so it's kind of, what if a writer from SNL type fell in love with a sort of musician on SNL type? Mm. And how would she get past all her own neuroses to like... Make, make it to happily ever after. I read Carrie Soto is Back, which is about a tennis player attempting a comeback. That's Fewer why... old gods than I'm entirely comfortable with. I but, know, uh... it, it did lack somewhat in old gods. So I, I look, I'm saving myself up. I'm kind of holding my fire for the Empire of the Vampire sequel yes. in a couple of months. You Empire know? of the Damned, which yep. comes out very soon, I think. You know, and I, I did buy some new books yesterday. I bought uh, the new Tasha Suri book. I bought The Passage by Justin Cronin. Yes. Did I mean The Passage? The one after the Vampire one. 
once. Uh, so, well, no, so The Passage is the first of the vampire yeah, ones. Yeah, no, I've read that. I loved it. Yeah. And then I didn't love the sequel, but then this is the other one. With the... Did you read the third in the series? Oh, yes, I did. Yeah, no, oh, I didn't okay. love that either. Yeah. But the first one is incredible. first one is great. And they made a TV series of it, which got cancelled. They did. Um, no, I'm talking about his other book, which has a different I know name. he's got a new one. I do know he's got Look, a new I one. Look, I picked it up. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah. You can't expect miracles of me. <laughs> And I'm also reading a fabulous biography of Anime Wong, which I haven't finished yet, but I will recommend when it comes when it's published in a little while. Interesting. Yeah. So it's been it has been busy for reading. It just hasn't been as busy as I would like for old gods. Ah, uh, that's fair. Well, so the thing is, I got a I got a new e-reader over uh, over Christmas, so I've ooh. become a little bit you know I've I've got, it's got me back into reading because I have a new like toy to play with. And it's well, hang on. So like not a Kindle. Like, no, it's not a Kindle. It's but, a Kobo. Oh, I'm aware of these. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a Kobo. It has a weird little creasy cover thing. What's yeah, the advantage of a Kobo? Um, this is a good question. Uh, are there advantages? I suppose in the one that it doesn't lock you into the Amazon ecosystem because it uses EPUBs, which is okay, the same okay. stuff that the Apple Store uses. Right. So which is like the open ebook. So it format. locks you into Apple. Well, not exactly, but yeah. <laughs> so you can use EPUB books on there, but more it's just it's just it's just I don't know, it's new and cool and different. And I like all these things. But also uh it has physical page turn buttons. Ooh. And only the most expensive Kindle has those. Okay. Not the regular Kindle. And I like a, I like a physical button. I'm quite a tactile. My, my Kindle is uh coming up on nine years old, so wow. mine is very much not fancy. But it is it is handy for my the speed at which I go through books. Yes. Because I can't go on holiday with real books. Do you know what? Someone recommended me a thing and it was called something that I've forgotten. But anyway, it's a it's a method of reading, apparently, for people with ADHD and other kind of neurodiverse conditions to help them kind of read quicker. Because I, as you know, read at a painfully slow rate to the point where it's almost comical. Um, and this thing, which is called bionic reading, essentially it emboldens the first two letters of each word. Ooh. And apparently that causes the brain, not just neurodiverse people, to, to kind of flow from one word to the other in a kind of more in an, in an expedited way, it makes you read faster. So I was going to give that a go. Is this like the advice about writing your first draft in Comic Sans? No one should ever do that. No, apparently they should. Should they? It makes it seem lower stakes. It makes and it seem easier. dreadful, I'm sure. And it ju- the words just fly out of you. I have been known to attempt this, and I'm ashamed to say it does work. This is funny. Well, because people talk about the vomit draft, don't they? Where mm. your first draft just get it on the page should be nonsense. Yeah, and. So, interestingly, on Christmas morning, I was listening to a podcast. It was one of the episodes of Ty and That Guy, which is the Expanse Time podcast. And Ty Frank, who wrote the Expanse books, he was saying so that... Brand. It really is. He writes at three and four in the morning. That's his writing time. He likes to write in the wee hours. And and was like, why? And he said, well, in the, for the same reason that Hemingway, because obviously they're much the same thing. Uh, for the same reason that Hemingway wrote while drunk. It was because, he said, there are two parts of the brain. There's the editor and the writer. And what you need is you need the editor to shut the fuck up while mm. the writer's trying to work. So whether you're drunk or tired, you need to be enough so that you can write and let it flow, but you don't self-censor. And so he's saying, actually, if you don't want to do either of those things, another thing to do is exactly what you do, Helen, which is you put on your Battlestar Galactica playlist and the music, the Bear McCreary drowns out the editor, lets the writer work, and only when it's time to edit your own copy do you turn it off and... That's it. Yeah. It's the old uh, write drunk, edit sober. Exactly that. Exactly that. Not necessarily drinking, of course, as the host of the newly launched pop culture soft drinks podcast. What a segue. (laughs) Um, I am obviously uh, all for not drinking. Oh, I did read something else over Christmas. I read The Black Hawks. Oh, David Rag. By David Rag, yes. yeah, which was a lot of fun. It's on my reading list. Yeah, I will be read, reading the next one after it. So there we go. Just oh, that is it. exciting. I, you've noticed, Helen, I'm currently drinking a bottle of Dr. Pepper Zero. 
Wow. Really in honour of pop culture, the podcast. Sure. <laughs> so that's what that is. It's a bit of cross-promotion. I've been trying some ex- exciting new drinks. How was your New Year's? What did you drink on New Year's? Uh, what did I drink on New Year's? I drank a prodigious amount of Diet Coke, uh, which was lovely. <laughs> and I saw in 2024 while driving down the A406. Oh, the you best know. way to celebrate. Right? Like, it was absolutely banging. Was, in fact, listening to Taylor Swift at the time. The less said about that, the better. <laughs> of course um, you were. So yeah, that was great. Well, no, because the reason was I was out with friends, went, uh, went to friends' house dinner, and I, you know, in my... Faded before midnight. Well, yeah, I left at eleven. Look, don't judge me. I'm middle aged, uh, but no, it was it was because I, I feared for my life because I feared that after midnight on New Year's Eve, the M25 turns into something akin to Fury Road, right? Like with people right. like on sort of like pole vault things like, yeah, you yeah, know, like yeah. war boys, witness me! You know, just what a lovely that, day. Like 100%. silver around the mouth. Yeah, Immortan Joe, all yep. of that. And I'd left myself a spray paint at home, so oh. I couldn't participate. So I was like, well, if I leave early, mm-hmm. then I will miss <laughs> the majority of the Mad Max style action and just get home in one piece. Right. So that, wow. that's why. Wow, okay. Yeah. I went to Hastings, that centre of New oh, Year's yes. activity, uh, to my sister's house and we watched... Did you leave at 1066? <laughs> no. Good call though. But um, but w- what we did try to do is the thing that I think I tweeted about on New Year's Eve and I saw other people tweeting about, which was the Dungeons and Dragons thing, which is if you start Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> at just the right moment... You ring in the new year with a woman on the council going, Jonathan. Jonathan. So we attempted to do that. I'm not sure we were spot on in our in our timing, actually, but we were close enough. And then we went out and somebody was putting off enormous of amounts of fireworks on the seafront. And it was lovely. Oh. Freezing, incredibly windy, raining, but lovely. I mean, England. But I'd say a lot of people did this thing where they were like, if you if you tee up this at this time, if you tee up, to see like yeah. so the snap in Avengers exactly. Endgame is a big one. Yep. Someone did say if at eleven forty eight you put on Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon, you'll be completely free at midnight because you'll have turned it off after ten minutes. So I thought that was quite an interesting one. Harsh, harsh, a little harsh. No, but I've, ne- I've but never yeah. done that. I've never I've never tried to tee up a. Uh, we we attempted it. I think the problem film. was my sister had it on on uh, a TV channel which had ads, and so that threw off our timing. I think slightly as trying uh, to get through the ads. Were they watching something started. on Prime Video? No, this was oh no. The, well, that's about to start, isn't it? Isn't yeah, it? yeah. End of this week, I think. Uh, this was Now TV, which also had ads, so in, yeah. at least on her subscription level. Um, so yeah, this is this is Prime adding yeah. ads as well now. And I guess. On the one hand, and we did discuss this, I guess, on the last regular podcast mm. that we did, but um, it's not unusual. Like most of them, as Tom Jones might say, yeah. they a lot of these streaming services will have an ad-supported tier. But the thing is, what they, most of them do is say, hey, look, here's a cheaper one with ads. And what Prime Video have done is said, you know the thing you pay for? We're now putting ads in it. If you don't want them, give us an extra two ninety nine a month. Yeah. Which seems a bit of a, you know... An annoyance. An annoyance, yes. That said, everyone, you're only paying for the postage anyway. It's it's the prime you pay for. The TV is bonus. So I guess, you know, it's not that big a thing. Um, But yeah, so Apple, I think, is now the only streamer that does not have an ad-supported tier. Interesting. It's the only purely subscription model. Well, there you go. The more you know. Yeah. All facts available on the Pilot TV (laughs) podcast, which drops every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. Good Lord. Let's move swiftly on. (laughs) Shall we have a question? Let's do it. So I obviously did a panic shout out just a few moments ago and uh, got some very good questions in. Um, There are a couple of sort of common threads, some of which we've kind of discussed before. For example, at 89 Monday asks, what resolutions would you want studios and directors to make this year? Do not write off your films for tax purposes. 
really good resolution. I would also say make some new franchises. Don't just make new installments in the franchises you have. And that's more directed at studios than directors. Directors should do whatever you need to do to keep working and making great films. But studios, really, think of the future. What franchises are you going to remake in 20 years if you don't make some new ones now? Anyway. I'm just going to stop ranting accurate, about that. Accurate. This is why The Creator was one of my favourite films of last year, because to have a brand new, sort of like, ambitious space opera-esque sci-fi, not based on an existing IP, it oh. almost feels revolutionary. Stop. It's the dream. And I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. People are saying, well, I think you're fine. Zack Snyder is that the same way. Diddy, though. Diddy, though. It's Star Wars rebadged, and I will not hear anything else. Well, it was inspired by Star Wars when he was a toddler or yeah. 11-year-old or whatever. You know, it's, it's got some DNA, that's all. Um, I do have another question, though, which is uh, comes from at D20 Future Show, who asks, if you could erase one film franchise from existence, Ooh. which would you erase? And if you could will one into existence, which one would you create? Oh, my God. Now, I have an answer for the second one first. Well, I have an answer for both, probably. If I could will one into existence, it would probably be Temeraire, which is, of Mm. course, the Napoleonic Wars refought with dragons. Go watch Napoleon, admire all the battles, and then think to yourself, you know what these battles are lacking? Dragons. And imagine it with dragons, and you will see that I am onto something here. Or, or, or watch the first half of Napoleon. Turn it off when you get incredibly bored and put on something like Dragonheart, mash the two things together, and that's basically what you're looking okay, for. Okay, so yeah, get yourself half asleep, watch half of Master and Commander, <laughs> like and then Reign of Fire. <laughs> yes, and then... That was a much better example than Dragonheart. I don't know what I was thinking. Yes, or Reign of Fire. Tra- how to Train Your Dragon, of even course, that. even better. But yeah, um, but yeah that, that would be my one that I would will into existence and if I could erase one from existence let's be honest it might be Bond I knew you were going to say that it was going to be Bond that was so unnecessary don't come for Bond look well I never have but uh... (laughs) (laughs) there have to be worse franchises more hateful franchises so like the wag here might be like well I think I'd delete the DCEU but I wouldn't I wouldn't. No, no. I would not delete the DCAU, even though some of them are bad. I wouldn't even delete like Twilight or anything like that oh, because no. I do think all of these things, even the bad ones. So like, you know, something like Highlander, which has one great film yeah. and a load of terrible ones. But I might you delete, don't the sequels, delete the good one, but I would keep the original. Same with the Matrix. Yep. Keep the Matrix. Get rid of all the sequels. Fine, but you want to keep the the original. Mm. And what if you could erase a film franchise but then redo it? So, like, Mm. Bond has never existed, but we can start afresh (laughs) with Bond now. Do you know what I mean? Would that be interesting to you? It it, it might, but I wouldn't want to get rid of the Bonds that I love. Like, I love things like Goldfinger. I love the Craig Bond. Well, every other Craig Bond. (laughs) You know, I love love Brosnan. I've done, hey, I love all the Bonds. What can I tell you? you? Um, Do you know what I might get rid of? What's that? Transformers. Oh. But the reason being, I think, first of all, it denied us Michael Bay for such a long period of time. And, you know, I loved Ambulance. <laughs> hey, hey, <laughs> hey. Uh, you know, the man who created The Rock, do you know what I mean? Like, the man has got some skills, and I feel like he's been pouring them into Autobots and Decepticons for so long. Just don't. Do you know what I mean? Like, the first Transformers, <laughs> I was there for it. It was great fun. Stop there. Boom. Jobs are good. Bumblebee, James. Bumblebee was great. But that obviously didn't deny us uh, Michael Bay. But uh, no one watched it. 
Yeah. And I kind of think... Nobody watched The Creator either. I mean, that Didn't is stop true. you loving that. That is true. That is true. Yeah, Bumblebee was great. Bumblebee was also particularly funny because it was like the anti-Michael Bay film. Like, it's like Travis Knight went out of his way to... <laughs> like, because the car crash in it is fucking hilarious where it's just like this little dink, like a little, like, tiny little fender bender. The kind of thing where you get out and look at it and exchange insurance details. Mm. Somebody did that in front of me on the road at Christmas. Thankfully, I wasn't involved. You just watched them. It was an anti-Bay car crash. Yeah, I mean, we were pretty much at a standstill and I was obviously keeping a sensible distance from the car in front, but somebody in front of me wasn't doing so. Only a fool breaks the two-second rule. That's it. So, anyway. Any other things I would expunge from existence in terms of uh, franchises? I don't know that I would. Like, things like American Pie. I mean, scary movie. The scary movie films I hate with the fire of a thousand suns, but that's because I really detest that kind of spoof parody genre. Like, it really bugs me because I don't understand well, you humor. don't like humor but Quite. like I, I feel like it's not fair to call those spoofs because spoofs are you know funny like the like the naked gun films i find very funny hot shots funny top mm. shot top secret funny the problem with the scary movie films is they literally lift entire scenes from the films that they're ripping off without actually yeah. making them funny at any point yeah they forget to bring in the good jokes yeah and they just think like putting like toilet humor in there is 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 you know. Same screenwriter as Chernobyl, though. It's still mind blowing. Yeah, that that does that, that that does kind of blow my. I mean, you said Chernobyl, The Last of Us, Helen. <laughs> Same screenwriter as The Last of Very Us. Very good point. Yeah. Um, I have thought of one. Okay. If Chris were here, he'd get upset, but he isn't, so I can say it. I would, if <laughs> I could delete be a out. franchise from history, it would be Hostel. <gasps> it would be hostile. And this is no disrespect to Eli Roth, but I really fucking hate that entire Gorno genre. I think it's twisted. I think it's horrible. I think it's arguably socially irresponsible. But I just, I find it so ick. It's so ew. It's so nasty that, and sore, I give a free pass because the first one's good. But Hostel is just such a grotty, horrid little franchise. And yes, it stars Chris, therefore it's even worse. I mean, than, I was going to say. You <laughs> would, it was you previously. Would, you would take away his incredible turn as, what was it? Drunk, drunk British slob. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, but I just, I can't get on board with it. Because remember, there was a whole slew of those things. There was one, one with Alicia Cuthbert. Was it Captive? Something like that. Sounds right. Yeah, it's a horrible, horrible little films. I'm very pleased that that entire genre seems to have fallen out of fashion, even if we are still getting sore films. But, uh, suddenly they're not uh, quite as commonplace. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, well, um, there you have it. Uh, some kind of answer to that question. Um, apologies, everyone else, and thank you for uh, uh, responding to my panicked shout-out. I do appreciate it, even if we didn't get around to it. Uh, shall we have a guest? Let's have a guest. Who okay. is it, Helen? Well, first up, Joel Edgerton, um, who has an enormous range as an actor, but I think in the last few years seems to have specialised as the guy you go to when you need somebody who's quiet, who is competent, who is quietly competent um, in films like last year's Master Gardener, in the Star Wars movies, mm. and of course in Obi-Wan uh, TV show last year, and now in The Boys in the Boat. He is the steady hand on the tiller. Mm. Uh, not literally in this case because he's not the cox. Um, stop sniggering. Steady. Stop sniggering. Uh, he is, of course, the coach. Um, and uh, we sent along Chris to talk to him about the film uh, recently. So please be warned that this interview starts, I believe, mid-sentence due to mechanical difficulties, but that is really happening. It's not just you. Your podcast hasn't skipped. I'm, I apologise. I think it's in keeping with Peak TV. It's an in-media res interview. That's exactly what we were going deliberate. for. It's deliberate. deliberate, fully deliberate. And here is Chris talking to Joel Edgerton. I mean, it's interesting. We're sitting here by the poster. Mm. Uh, and there you are, Joel. Mm-hmm. Uh, resplendent in, in your suit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, 
I guess were you you know you're now you were playing the coach, but yeah. what, 10, 15 years ago, would you have wanted to be in that boat? I would have been in the boat, yeah, yeah. ten years ago. You know, yeah. look, you know, uh, to to sort of evoke the 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 lovely spirits of um, the movie Warrior. Oh, you know, I, I know what it's bit. like, obviously, to to be. Well, I was I was in my early thirties, but a youngish man being asked to arrive three months before a movie is shooting to to try and make sure that you're uh, equipped with the physical skills to sell the trick on screen that you are the thing that you're playing because yeah. there's some things you can't fake, right? Yeah. And for all the pain that you go through, there's an incredible satisfaction, pride, and and um, pleasure that comes through all that hard work. And I just kind of really appreciated watching these guys have the chance to do that. For all the hours that, you know, for all the rowing on the, – the, I think when they started training, it was snowing on the Thames. But they all did it. They all did it in, in unison. No one tried to kind of, you know, opt out or presume they were, you know, too important to train or, you know, yeah, yeah. there was no stardom in that boat and they they and you start to see them physically transform and start to kind of become a well-oiled machine and it was a real pleasure to watch and I, and it was a real pleasure to just stand off to the side <laughs> in a three-piece suit <laughs> with a cup of tea <laughs> i mean the most strenuous thing that that, that uh, coach al does in this movie is sit in his porch and take in the view i and mean that's whiskey yeah, have a whiskey. <laughs> I mean, that's and it's good because people then uh, people like beautiful uh, Peter McGuinness just talk about uh, Peter Guinness. Sorry, talk about how um, how good a rower I was, and the audience goes, "Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay, must have been good." <laughs> Did you factor that into your your character's backstory? Yeah, you know, he was really pugnacious on the water. He was yeah, he had it all. It's funny because you know when people talk about what research did you do and all that, like. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I. St the older I get, I'm more interested in just going. Okay, what happens behind the curtains of the magic show stays there, and I don't want to make it sound like I squeezed my body through the head of a squash racket to play a character. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or that I didn't see my family for a year and a half, or any of that stuff. You know, there's, there's a, a, a nice mystery to just going. All right, but what you see on the screen is it does it work or does it not work? Yeah. You know, but the one, the one thing. There's always a surprising thing that you find research in, and um, and the the thing that I really started to explore was was just watching all sorts of sport where where the coach just looked like he was having a horrible time because <laughs> you know there were two lines in the script where I think my wife says it and someone else uh, the journalist um says that, you know, maybe I'll crack a smile one day and my, my wife says, you, you actually look good when you smile. Yeah. You know, an indication that he just looked pissed off all the time. And, yeah, he's just tense. He's got You know, on the verge of a heart attack. Yeah. Just like, but, but those are the coaches, when you see them, red in the face, pacing up and down, looking like they're having the worst time of their life. It's because they care. So they always care too much about the sport, about their team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're trapped on a sideline, unable to really change the course of events. All they can do is put the work in ahead of time and do a bit of shouting during the the you know, while while the clock's running. That's it. They can't they can't affect That's anything. It. Once they go out there, once they cross that white line. But then they can now. be they can give you the biggest cuddle when you win. Mm -hmm. And that's what dads are like too, you know, a little bit. 
sometimes you're looking for clues, like, do they really love me? Am I doing a good job? Mm. And then all of a sudden, there's just a hand on your shoulder that says, I'm proud of you. And you're like, oh, <laughs> he loves me so much. <laughs> and I think coaches are, are like dads with, you know, in this case, like eight kids or yeah. nine kids. So what was your sport of choice? I mean, what is your sport of choice? I, mean, I had a lot of sport. I actually, uh, speaking of dads, I realized that the way to really fully get my dad's attention because he was starting his own business and if I was in a play or if I was on the sports field, they were things he would show up for. All right. Um, and uh, at first it was uh, I was a goalkeeper and played cricket and then I started doing karate. Uh, I got a black belt when I was like 16, 17. So wow. he'd come and watch me do, you know, try and kick other people. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, and then basketball because Michael Jordan, you know, came along. Right. And all right. My, my friends and I were in that pocket and we just thought we were mini <laughs> Michael Jordans. Um, and then uh, and then I became like got into surfing, which is a totally different thing. It's all about yourself and improving yourself. Um, but team sports, my favourite. I think football, and um, never played rugby league or rugby union, basketball and and football. So when you say when you say football, do you mean Aussie rules or do you mean no like soccer, like soccer, soccer. Yeah, football, okay. soccer? Interesting, interesting. So do you still follow? I it? think it's the greatest game in the in the world. It I'm not. Crazy. I don't have a team. Yeah. I just every time I say it, I just think it it's the game I want my kids to play because of the skill, fitness. It's it's not a violent sport. Um, and it's just, um, I think it, 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 it's just an excellent game and it's an excellent game to watch. Makes you feel tense. <laughs> there's a tension to football that freaks you out because the, there's so few goals being scored in, in for the most part. I, be, I become a horrible person every but time. But it gets close yeah. to it. So it, it, it's, um, I think there's a lot of lessons to be made in, um, about how to make a good suspense film in, in watching soccer. It's like, don't release attention too much. It's interesting. I, I've, I was thinking about that because uh, rowing isn't a sport that I th- while whilst watching the film, I was thinking about how rowing isn't a sport that we really know, apart from in a televisual sense when we mm. watch it at the Olympics or the the boat race over here where mm. you battle between the halves and the halves. Um, and then you, George makes it really cinematic. I know. Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Because every time I've seen a football movie yeah they try to make a cinematic yeah and i always think that's a bit of a mistake that they perhaps should just present it to the audience the way that we're used to seeing it on tv but here it really works lots of crash zooms and yeah football's football's hard to shoot too because you know do you just let a game happen and don't coordinate like trying to coordinate i i yeah i did a tv show in australia where um every you know like every friday these, we all lived in an apartment building and we'd have a drink on the rooftop, but beforehand we'd all have a social game of football. And shooting it was impossible. Some directors would try and uh, choreograph certain things, which is a mess because, like, it just feels artificial. And others would just, like, just go out there and play and we'll just shoot you, which is always better. But yeah. um, I was worried that rowing wouldn't be cinematic enough or not – I was more thinking I'm glad I'm not trying to be the one to make it exciting because yeah. I, you know, shooting on boats or boats to another boat and trying to trying to find a point of view and a different dynamism to three significant races. Um, I, I think he did a marvellous job. I think hats off to the editorial team too because yeah. that yeah. they deserve a lot of the sense of what that achievement is. Um, 
and Martin, the cinematographer. But it, it starts to, you know, I was sitting next to a friend of mine who'd never seen the film. In fact, I was watching it for the first time, but I, you know, I knew what was happening. And I could feel getting physically involved from his seat. And I was like, that's good. <laughs> and, and listen, the one thing I knew is if I got enthralled by the Queen's Gambit. Yeah. And they made chess exciting for yeah. me. Yeah. And I know chess is an exciting game when you're playing, but there are things that are exciting when you're doing them that for other people are like, hmm, you know, like cricket. Yeah. yeah I think it's difficult. Cricket's um, fun to watch the more you drink, I think. Um, <laughs> but like a test cricket game is is a patient watch. Um, uh, rowing, I just suspect, is one of those sports that's like when you're doing it, you feel on top of the world if you're winning. Um, but watching it's a tougher yeah. situation. And, and I just think, they did a great job of turning it into cinema. It can be tricky because I think some of the best sports to translate are the ones that are, are about moments. And they tend to be weirdly American sports, mm -hmm. which you know, boil down to you know, American football and baseball. They have this sort of stop-start rhythm. Oh, yeah. Not in the way cricket does, which obviously lasts for five days it's, if you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but. Depending where you are on the field too, it's all <laughs> <Yeah>. stop. <laughs> it's just stop. Oh, here comes the ball. Oh, shit. <laughs> as far away as possible. Yeah. Um, what was George like as a director? And is it what's, what's the difference for you between an actor who is a director and just a, a, a director? Well, look, the, I think uh, I love uh, every time I, I hear about an actor that I, you know, that I admire who's deciding to direct a film. I'm like, can't wait to see it. Excited for them because I've been through yeah. that experience. And, yeah. you, you know, and look, it doesn't always become a great transition, but maybe more often than not it does, you know, looking at people like Maggie Gyllenhaal and um, different people who have, t you know, Bradley Cooper and you're like, yeah. there's some incredible kind of use of knowledge of whatever they've accumulated and, and, and maybe a better use of their intelligence because I think direct directing requires a multi-dimensional intelligence and a mm. um, bunch of skills that you don't need to bring to the table as an actor. And you know George is one of and and what I will say is you can all you can hope is that if you're in the hands of one of those people, that they're just not too prescriptive to you. That they they understand as they do that as an actor you want to participate in the collaborative process. That somehow you're in safe hands and you feel like captain by the by a good person by a good creative captain, but they also want you to bring stuff uh, to the table, um, ideas and collaboration and. Um, so you don't want anyone to be too prescriptive, you know. Oh, I'm glad that George wasn't the person who's like, "Listen, kid, let me show you how you should do it," <laughs> and uh, I'll just do a take and then just do what I did. Um, and and he understands the craft really well. That his sets are really efficient; they move quick. You're never doing overtime, um, but you can tell he's he's confident about what he needs to get, and he goes about getting it. And when he when he's got it, he's ready to move on. And he's fun to be around. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you know, yeah. I was at a Q&A last night with him and I just like, I'm just going to sit here, shut up. This is like a comedy <laughs> show. He's very quick-witted. He's always got good stories. He's incredibly charming. I, I, My mum kept saying to me, you know, like a lot of people would love to meet George, you know. My mum's like, when am I going to get – when can I talk to George? And uh, so one day she FaceTimed me and I was sitting right next to him. And um, I told him my mother's name and he'd remembered, you know. And I said, hey, mum, 
Um, and I just answered the phone and I handed it to George. But it was like Sydney time, 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. And she already, I think, was posted up on the easy chair, you know, with her hair all over the place. And she was mortified. She's like, but she was trapped. She's like, and she's having this chat with George. He's like, Marianne. <laughs> <laughs> and he was he charmed her, you know, fully charmed her while throwing me under the bus. <laughs> like, your son can't act and da 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 you know, making a laugh. It was pretty funny. Oh, that's amazing. So he's not one for then for line readings. No, uh, I'm guessing. No, yeah. Definitely. And he really I I I keep thinking it's um shtick, but I think he he and I've talked about working together before and he just really was interested for me to be in his film and I I keep I keep thinking that, you know, the self-effacing, you know, Australian in me is like, oh, he must have, Matt must have been busy and this. And that's probably true, you know. It was probably maybe a couple of other people that he, th- <laughs> he thought might satisfy the budget a bit more. But he was genuinely interested in me as an actor. Yeah. And I love that. And I'm very flattered by it. Because you obviously, you know, you've directed yourself in the past. Any plans to direct again? Is that something Yeah, something? I've written a thing that I uh, three weeks ago was certain was perfect, not perfect, but like ready to start to kind of get the, the cogs turning as in like finance and work yeah. out how and, all, and casting and all that stuff. And um, and then as I always do about a week later, I was like, no, nah, this is terrible and I need to <laughs> like rethink the whole thing. So, I'm in that process, but I, I, I think the next stage will I'll be ready and I'm hoping to make another movie next year. And what I want to do is go back to the uh, the world of – or the tone, rather, of The Gift. Okay. It's okay. it's it's my sort of – not safe space. It's, it's what I want to watch. I want to be disturbed, um, given some sort of insight about something that I'm interested in. You know, like with the gift, it was about bullying. I'm really interested in exploring um, why normal people get violent with each other at the moment. You know, this is sort of what I'm interested to explore, but in a suspenseful, mysterious, and hopefully satisfying way. Amazing. But, and to scare, like, scare an audience a little bit along the way, but not in an obvious way. Oh, I don't yeah, know if I could ever make a true horror film. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I like. I like uh, making people uncomfortable Movies for the right reasons. Skin. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And stay with you three or four days afterwards, or sometimes even weeks. Yeah, that's, and like I, I, I really loved, uh, for example, us. I mean, so I like us, but Get Out. Yeah, you know, is is this idea of putting ideas into a different form so that you get a wider audience? But, um, but but also, uh, you know, the the original kind of uh, cut of the gift had a, a little sense of humour to certain aspects of it that I took away from the film because it felt I started to worry it was a little bit um, shifted tone a couple of times. So I'm interested to explore that tone again but perhaps make it a so little bit more enjoyable. Okay. Yeah. That's exciting. So we'll see. Next, when we see each other on the other side, you can tell me. <laughs> you're like, this, you said this, 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 and this. You did two of them. <laughs> I wasn't scared and it wasn't funny. Well, there you go. That's, but you made a movie. You made a movie. Yeah. And that's it. That's, yeah. all, that's all we can hope for in this, in this crazy world. <laughs> on that note, Joel Edgerton, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks yeah, so much, man. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Well, that was Joel Edgerton. Uh, now, let's see. Has there been any news this week? Oh, God. Um, 
Let's look and pretend while I play for time that I have been looking all along. <laughs> I'll tell you what I did watch. What's that? Uh, the Omen prequel trailer. Tell me about it. I haven't had a chance to look at this one yet. So the film is called Frantically Googles. Uh, <laughs> Frantically Googles? Are yes. you sure? Frantically Googles. It's very well. The first Omen. Oh. See what they did? So, so, so when someone told me... It's a bit less me, imaginative than Frantically Googles. True. But okay. But also I was like, I was like, it's a prequel to The Omen. I mean, he's a baby in the first one. So how much prequelizing can you really do? But it turns out quite a lot because mm. this seems to be very much focusing on Damien's mother and how she was essentially pressured into the satanic cult. Oh, so it's like you a know. Rosemary's baby for the omen. A little bit. Like it's it's a bit like Rosemary's fetus. Like I don't know. Like so she's she's inducted into the cult. But the thing that threw me about so it's a very effective, it's a very effective teaser. Like it actually seemed really scary. It actually seemed made me want to watch it, which I wasn't expecting. But the thing that threw me is it starts with a very familiar needle drop. And I was like, oh. And it's If I Had a Heart, which is, and I forget the name of the band that does it, but it's the theme tune to fucking Vikings, the TV series. Oh. Vikings, which ran for, what, seven years. So it's not like, oh, no one will remember that. Like, it ran for a long time. So this music is very, very iconic. So I was expecting to see long boats and axes falling through the water. And instead I saw, you know, Satan. But mm. uh, so other than that slightly weird musical choice, I was pleasantly surprised by this. I was, okay. I mean, excited might be overstating it, but I was I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm open to watching this. <laughs> <laughs> this first omen of yours. Steady on, James. There you, you go. Need to need to rein in the enthusiasm, but that's that's exciting. Okay, I will check that out later. Um, I did find some news out there. Uh, so Stephen Yuan is apparently out of Thunderbolts. You may be saying to yourself, "I didn't know he was in Thunderbolts." Uh, certainly, Marvel hadn't hundred percent confirmed I him. I didn't know he was in it. Well. Well, Marvel hadn't confirmed it, but it was widely reported last year, and uh, and apparently it's just due to changing sort of. Uh, it's because it got pushed back, wasn't it? Yeah, it's because like, it, everything got mm. pushed back because of the strike. So he now has a conflict. So he is out apparently of Thunderbolts, and we don't know what we're missing because I literally don't know who he was going to play. Also, this week, Jack Black has joined the Minecraft movie. I don't know, James. Will he be playing a small green block of a various shade of green? Oh, see, I was about to see you missed beat me by I was about to say something along the lines of he's just joined. What was blocking him? I don't know. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. It that that creeped up on us. Is that is that a thing in the The creeps are the little the little monstery things in the survival mode. They're kind of creeps. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. I'm just looking game. And oh, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, big gamer that you are. Huge gamer. Very big fan of Minecraft. <laughs> I know that the children crave the mines. They do. Um, and, uh, and love to work in the Minecraft and build the things. I had always thought children shouldn't work in mines, but apparently this is not the case. <laughs> yeah, it seems a lot of Minecraft. So, I, and this is absolutely true. I played Minecraft a grand total of one time. And I, like, I appeared on what seemed to be an island holding a pickaxe. Mm -hmm. And there was a zombie that came at night and it scared me. And so, not really knowing what I should do, I tunnelled into the mountainside with my pickaxe and then I walled myself in inside the mountain and started a fire. And that was about as far as I got. Right, I, that doesn't sound like the purpose of the game. I, I genuinely, I think I'm supposed to build some kind of fortress or, you know, the Enterprise or something. Anything. But okay. I, just, I just tunnelled into the mountain to keep myself safe from the zombie. I see. Okay, so this is a film that is happening now. It yes. is directed by Jared Hess, who's the guy who brought us Napoleon Dynamite and various things since, including, of course, Nacho Libre, which starred Jack Black. It did. This stars Jason Momoa already and has people like Danielle Brooks in it as well. Um, there have been lots of people rumoured. I'm not sure how many of them are actually official, but Emma Mayer Myers is also in there. 
So I just don't really know what to expect, but presumably it's going to be people tunnelling into mountains, I guess. Yeah. I mean, as with all these things, like I'm sceptical because it seems like a very cynical attempt to cash in on an IP mm. without, I don't know, really much of a story. But I could be wrong. Like, it could be a brilliant narrative movie that's just hooked onto this IP. Like, I, again, The Last of Us has made it very, very clear. I mean, to be fair, you can't really compare that. It's got the best narrative of any video game ever made. But do you know what I mean? Like, it has proven that it is possible to make an all-time classic banger out of a video game IP. Mm -hmm. Minecraft, not the most story-driven thing in the world. No, but, but maybe, sure. maybe that gives them a blank page to work from. You it know? does. So that could be great. Let's hope it is. Let's hope it is. Let's hope it is. Uh, what else has happened? So Zack Snyder said, and you know, obviously this will be the news that you will be very excited about, mm. he wants to make a young James Bond movie. Oh, Gosh, does he? Yes. Oh. So, Helen, you deleted mm. the entire Bond canon. So it makes sense to start again with a young one. Exactly. And you opened the door for Zack oh, Snyder boy. to jump in. What have I done? Um, no, look, that's that's wrong of me. Here's the thing. Okay. He may want to do this, but I would remind you that many storied and successful directors have wanted to do a Bond film, mm. including, we're pretty sure, Christopher Nolan and definitely Quentin Tarantino has, has expressed his interest a number of times. And I think what's quite clear is that E.ON are not necessarily after big-name directors, especially big-name American directors, for their films, which they like to keep quite close control of. Mm. Now, I, I don't want to suggest that they don't hire good directors. They do. Sam Mendes, of course, has been there. Really, really good people have made Bond films. But at the same time, they seem to go for maybe a level below... The, the sort of control that someone like Zack Snyder would, would demand or would ask for. So I don't think this is something I personally need to worry about happening or be excited about because every day is Christmas Eve. But it's interesting. I mean, I think it's also interesting that given that he has just spent quite a lot of time talking about working up his kind of own planned massive universe for Rebel Moon, given that as last God, I heard he was planning an Army of the Dead sequel or another spin-off of that, I'm not sure where this falls on his would-like-to-slash-to-do list. Yeah. I, I feel this may have been one of those news stories that was the result of there not being any news stories because it was literally a quote where he said something along the lines of uh, he quite liked the idea. He said, it'd be super awesome, he probably said. Uh, <laughs> it'd be cool to see like 20-year-old James Bond, the humble roots that he comes from, whatever trauma of youth that makes you able to be James Bond. There has to be something there. Question, humble roots? <laughs> yeah, it's, I was about to say, he lives in a stately home. He's like Lord Bond of Bondington or something, didn't, isn't he? Didn't he technically go to Eton? I mean, maybe yeah. he was a scholarship boy, but I'm yeah, pretty sure he wasn't. Could have could been a bursary. Didn't his parents die in a skiing accident? Yeah. I the, just, I don't think we're going to, you know, sell him as kind of... Yeah. I mean, it's not like the Kingsman with the sort of origin story for Taron Edgerton there, you know. He's not a kid from the streets. He's very much... Uh, Right-wing fuckface. That's, yes. uh, he's, not, he's hey, got... that's not my words. <laughs> that's Paul Greengrass. He's Bullingdon Club through and through. <laughs> uh, yes, that's absolutely true. So I, I'm not sure about humble beginnings, but hey, if it happens, it happens. Who Wouldn't doesn't love a richest to riches story? <laughs> uh, so, so how exciting? So there's there's one film that's kind of been on my radar for negative reasons, and that's that's mm. weird because it's got George Clooney in it, it's got Brad Pitt in it. I speak, of course, of, of Wolves, and the reason I call it upsetting is because it's the most grammatically annoying mm. film. Mm. Not wolves. No. Wolves. 
Is it somebody called Wolf and there's two of them? Well, Are they brothers? I see, see, it's about two lone wolf operators who team up. And I oh. wondered if you can't call it wolves because pluralising wolves means they're no longer... You can't have lone wolves. You can only have a lone wolf. Mm. So you have two lone wolves. I think they're playing fast and loose with the rules of grammar is what I'm saying. But I, I see maybe what they're doing. Are they innovating the way that J.R.R. Tolkien did when he Which changed the, the spelling of... Elves to elves and dwarfs, and dwarfs to dwarves. dwarves. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it's an intervention. Maybe it is. I was actually discussing that, that Tolkien thing with our sub-editor Liz this ah, week because I like to be pedantic. But the point I bring up, wolves, is because uh, it has been described as... George Looney was talking about it and he mentioned that it feels like an R-rated Oceans film. So, oh, yeah. well, in that case, I'm on board, even with the bad grammar. There you go. Do we want to give oxygen to the fact that Steamboat Willie's Mickey Mouse <laughs> is now out of copyright? <laughs> now, yeah. you know, look, this is, this is really interesting because the Walt Disney Corporation and has been fighting to extend copyright terms for the last 50 or so years, specifically to keep Mickey Mouse in copyright, yeah. right? Specifically for that reason. Um, and and now the Steamboat Willie, at least, version of the character is out of copyright. That is free to, you know, use as you will. Oh, yeah. And here's the thing. Not one, but two Mickey Mouse horrors have been unveiled this week. One has only a poster, the other one unveiled a very bad trailer. I'm not even going to name it because <laughs> like, I just don't want to give it oxygen. And I had to sit through Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, so I'm already <laughs> scarred and I'm not going to take the bullet this time, man. Yeah. You can go see that one. I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it again. I'm not going back there. <sighs> and it's from the director of The Mean One, the Grinch horror parody. You know what? I skip that too. Mm. I just, I don't think copyright is fit for purpose. So I don't exactly celebrate when it's made to look like the good guy by people doing stupid, thoughtless, witless looking. I haven't seen it yet, but that's how <laughs> it looks in this trailer. Stuff with these characters. And I would really like to see people try just a little harder if you were going to use famous characters to do something actively clever with them. Take your inspiration from some of the many very good Dracula adaptations or, or Sherlock Holmes adaptations or things like that. Some, you know, some of the stuff that is not terrible Try being not terrible. And not Good in the advice. sense of don't be, you know, don't be as horror. By all means, be a horror. Just don't be a terrible one. And maybe these films will not be terrible. Obviously, every day is Christmas Eve, but they look like socks. They really look like socks under the tree. That's all I'm saying. They do. I mean, at least it's only the horror parodies we've had so far. But let's be honest, the porn industry will wake up and we'll all be seeing <laughs> Steamboat's Willie before the end of the year. Oh, I'm just no. saying, I'm just saying. Uh, it's upsetting, but it's true. Here's, a, here's an actual thing that happened. So I was tweeting on New Year's Day that, as a PSA, that Steamboat Willie was now in the public domain. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, you know what I should do? I should get like, a, like an image, like a Steamboat Willie image. So I went on to uh, uh, ChatGBT. Mm-hmm. And I asked it to use that Dali image creation thing. And I was like, I was like, uh, please do me Steamboat Willie as an action hero. And it did me Steamboat Willie with a machine gun. I was like, brilliant, let's write that on Twitter. And I was like, oh, let's do like a porn parody one. But like, so I said, please do me oh, no. sexy Steamboat Willie. And ChatGPT went, I'm sorry, Steamboat Willie is a cartoon character. That would be thoroughly inappropriate. And I was like, oh, I didn't know you had morals. And I went, okay, fine, fair enough. Can you do me Steamboat Willie wearing, I don't know, thigh-high boots and a whip? And, uh, and, not only did ChatGPT refuse to do it, it literally said to me, I'm sorry, I am ending this conversation now. I was shut down by ChatGPT for being prurient about Steamboat Willie. Wow. 
I mean, I'm on chat GPC's <laughs> side and, and there's another thing I never thought I would say. Yeah. Helen today coming out in favour of both copyright and the anti-copyright <laughs> monster that is chat GPT. Yeah. Oh boy. What a nightmare. Yeah. So don't uh, don't try and get sexy with uh, with chat GPT. She's having none of it. Well, that's a that's a good rule for life, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, I think yeah. so. What other news have we got? Uh, there's a bit of Peaky Blinders news, right. uh, which came out of the Radio Times. So, so uh, Stephen Knight, obviously, Peaky obviously. Blinders creator, has saying that he is writing the final bits of the script for the Peaky Blinders movie. Uh, he announced this a while ago. He's talked about it. I wasn't sure if it was still happening. I spoke to him about it. God, it must have been a year and a half ago uh, when he was prepping the final season of Peaky Blinders. Uh, and I know he's very much wanted to do it, but it seems now that he actually has, you know, pulled Momentum. something together. Killian Murphy's talked about how, you know, he he definitely be open to doing it if indeed he's in, if Tommy Shelby is part of the script like uh, I don't know if you saw the uh, the kind of uh, Barbenheimer Q&A that he did with Margot Robbie uh -huh. for Vanity Fair which was great but they talked about it then because she's a massive Peaky Blinders fan she was like are you going to do a movie and he was like yeah sure if Stephen comes up with a, a great script so what will the script be when will it be set will it have Shelby in it. Who knows? I know uh, when I spoke to him last, he was saying that he saw Peaky as being between two wars, okay. between the First and Second World Wars. And he was curious to see what would then happen after that point. So They all start developing nuclear bombs. Perhaps. Perhaps that's it. He can't, He develops mm. the atomic bond. <laughs> bond? The atomic bond could be oh, a very... See, that's the new Bond film. The young Bond, atomic bond. <laughs> and it's James Bond killing... Charlize Theron. Yes. <laughs> Sure. We've done it. I'm not sure we have, but okay. Okay, so this isn't a good time to buy Tweed Futures, you think. I Invest think so. in Tweed Futures, the, the Peaky Blinders film. <laughs> there was also, I'm afraid, some sad news this week, which was the death at only 75, which is not that old these days, of Tom Wilkinson, yes. the extraordinary British actor. I, I mean, I'm sure I'd seen him in things on TV and on film beforehand, but I sort of, like most people, I think, became really aware of him with uh, The Full Monty in 1997, where he's extraordinary. He followed that up with a, a really scene-stealing turn in Shakespeare in Love, which is no mean feat in that cast. Yeah. Um, he, he starred in incredible films like In the Bedroom. If you haven't seen that, if you haven't oh, seen his performance so there, good. good Lord, he's incredible in Batman Begins. Again, stealing, stealing scenes from some of the biggest names in the business. I mean, just I, I never saw him give a bad performance. Um, he's in things like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Michael Clayton. Michael Clayton, incredible, incredible role there. Um, he was Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. Um, he got an Emmy uh, nomination for that. Just a, a fantastic, fantastic actor. Um, I, I don't know. Did you have a favourite sort of film that you were going back and looking at? Do you know what? In the week? Bedroom is amazing. I remember mm. seeing that when it came out at the London Film Festival and being absolutely blown away by his performance in that. Um, this, this is really sad. And actually, I, it's awful, but I had a, I don't I, I wouldn't say I had an inkling, but I was worried about him because mm. obviously The Full Monty had its uh, kind of sequel miniseries thing that Disney put together uh, last year which we did a podcast on. And, you know, it was really good. It was really interesting. But crucially, his character of Gerald is not really in it. And there's another character brought in who at the time, I think Chris and I, when we did the podcast, we discussed, it felt like that character's arc was originally written for Gerald. Mm. And then they wrote in this extra character because Tom Wilkinson maybe wasn't. Because he looked in ill health. He didn't yeah. look very robust. And he's a much reduced presence in that in that series. Um so I was, I mean, I was a little worried about him. So then this coming is obviously, you know, tragic confirmation that maybe he wasn't in the best health um, and that, that maybe this was coming. Yeah. But yeah, a real uh, otherwise, loss. Otherwise, his last work was, I think, in two, uh, 2021. So it had been a little while since... It had been. been. 
yeah. you know, working fully. And he was so prolific there for the first sort of, for the end of the 90s into the noughties. I mean, he was one of those character actors who seemed to turn up in everything, obviously because he was in huge demand from any director with, you know, with with the wherewithal to cast him, wanted him. Um but yeah, huge, huge loss. Uh, incredible actor. If you haven't seen In the Bedroom and Michael Clayton in particular, oh, Michael Clayton's amazing. Out. And it's one of these films where it's absolutely brilliant and very few people seem to have seen it. Mm. So do if you do nothing else this weekend, seek out Michael Clayton on whatever streaming service you can find it on and watch that. Absolutely. So Tom Wilkinson, who passed away um, just after New Year's at yeah. the age of 75. We have some PSA-type information to put out there. We do, on a slightly happier note, yes. That's right. You're going to be seeing us in the flesh. Not no. So, And when I say in the flesh, I don't mean in the nud. That's not how we do live Good podcasts. God, no. We will be fully clothed, but we will be on stage within, you know, pouring distance of you. And, uh, and, and that's exciting. We're going to be at King's Place for the 600 podcast, which is on Saturday the... 20th. Sure. Saturday the 20th... I hope. ...of January, we think, or thereabouts. Uh, it is sold out. So if you don't have tickets, you cannot come. However, we have opened for the live stream. So if you want to watch us on stage in the comfort of your own home, please do so. You can get that on the King's Place website, the exact URL of which is Google Empire 600 King's Place, uh, and buy a ticket. Yes, that is, of course, kingsplace.co.uk. And then it's actually under what's-on-comedy, uh, sorry, slash comedy, slash the-empire-podcast-600th-episode-live, slash. Nothing, if not memorable. <laughs> so or just memorable. Google King's Place Empire 600. That, that uh, would also work. We have one guest confirmed and it is... We really do. An extremely exciting guest. As long as they don't drop out. Yes, but I don't think they will. There's no sign of dropping No, out. They seem a very steady, sober, sensible, reliable yes, person. Yes, as long as they are not, I don't know, maimed in a freak yachting accident between now and the show, they will be there. It will be exciting. Yes, and, and we have other guests in talks at the moment, but one very exciting person already confirmed it's going to be awesome. Yes. So, um, like like we say, yes, it is sold out, but you can still book online streaming tickets. The, the, the link is right there on the site. It's all happening. Do it. So do please come along and join us on the 20th of January. Yes, we're very, very excited. I have another PSA. Oh, please. Which is a slightly less good PSA. Oh, boy. Uh, so, inflation being what it is, it has been decreed by the powers that be at our company that the Empire Spoiler Specials podcast is going to go fractionally up in price as of the beginning of February. At the moment, it is $2.99. It will be going up to $3.49 a month as of the beginning of February. This was, you know, this is one of those things, unfortunately, that we don't have any control over, so we are just passing on the information. Uh, however, however, there is a silver lining... I mean, at the very least, a copper lining to this. And that's that you can still get an annual subscription to the Empire Spoiler Special Podcast and lock it in for a year at the old price. So if you do subscribe on a monthly basis and you do like the podcast, and please continue to subscribe because, frankly, we need you because uh, we like our jobs, you can subscribe now for the whole of 2024 for the existing price, which is actually less than $2.99 a month because you get like a month free if you do it for a year. Right. So you get it the old price and a month free and you won't have to worry about the new price until 2025 and that 
is a great deal. 2025 isn't a, even a, a real year. I don't believe in that. So. Exactly. It's so far away. Anything could have happened. We could all be dead by then. So, <laughs> look, uh, I think subscribe now for the year. Lock in that old price. For those of you who do insist on paying monthly, unfortunately, will go up ever so slightly. But take some solace from the fact that Pilot Plus will still be 2.99, oh, uh, and you can subscribe to that. Okay, enough out of you, I think. <laughs> and it is time, of course, for another guest, which brings us to J.A. Bayona. You know him. He established himself with Horror the Orphanage. He scarred us for life, but also launched the career of Tom Holland with The Impossible. And then he branched out into films not beginning with The, um, with Monster Calls and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Now, he is back with an extraordinary drama that is Spain's selection for the Oscars this year. That is, of course, Society of the Snow. And it tells, or perhaps retells, the extraordinary story of a sports team whose plane crashes high in the Andes and who must make incredible efforts to survive. We sent Chris along to talk to him and to find out more. So please enjoy this. J.A. Bayona, Director of Society of the Snow. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Welcome back to the Empire Podcast. It's been a while. How are you? Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. Oh, no, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, Do you know where you are at the moment? Because we were just talking off mic about, you know, you're in the middle of this Oscar campaign, much deserved, uh, your your Spain's uh, entry for this year's Oscars. uh, And you've been here, there and everywhere. So every day, a different city at the moment. Yeah, it's it's all like literally like I remember like I was like last week Monday I was in Berlin Tuesday I was in Rome Wednesday in Poland Thursday in London I mean it's very very demanding but you know it's it's great to be around with this film it's like yeah. uh, the people is uh, really reacting to it so it's great to be in this in this tour showing the film well, I, I've told you this to your face, so I'm not telling tales out of school. I, I think this film's incredible. Um, I, I, you must be incredibly proud of it. How, yeah. where, where does this hit for you I'm the, kind at the of moment? Relieved because uh, it's been to me like it's going back to work again as a director, challenging my, myself, getting out of my comfort zone. You know, it's so it's been so different from the kind of approach that I had in Jurassic World or Lord of the Rings, which is uh, you give your best, but always like like very clearly try, like working at the service yeah. of a big franchise, you know? Yeah. But in this case, I was working at the service of a true story in, 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 con- like in constant talk with the people who went through it. You know, so so it's it's very it's a very different story, and also the way I shot and approached the the way to film the story was very different. Like 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 it felt totally totally different. You know, because there's there's a a version of this movie where you can imagine a lot of directors might have just used a lot of soundstage work. Yeah. It would have been a lot of green screen, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah, uh, you didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you 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 even filmed at the actual crash site, mm-hmm. which is which is astonishing to me. Um, mm-hmm. At what point during the development process did you realize that's what you wanted to do? The, I, I remember that I was um, very moved by the book, and I feel, you know, and I thought I knew the story. It's a very popular story uh, in the Spanish-speaking world. It's very popular. Yeah. Uh, but I was very shocked about 
the that book very uh, i think it's clearly a, a different approach since the since that book was written 35 years after the plane crash i know so so it has the weight of the time that had passed it's a non-fiction book it's yeah. interviews on the survivors yeah um and also it's a book that is almost a reaction to the tale the, the tale that has been established, you know, in, in the popular minds, you know, yeah. in the minds of the people, you know. It's a reaction against these cheap, easy ideas on heroism, on focusing so much into cannibalism. You know, it, yeah, yeah. the book is so, so much different. So, so I, I, it actually, I was, re I was doing um, The Impossible. I, I was in pre-production for The Impossible mm. when the book was published in Spain. Um, the Impossible didn't have a title, and it was uh, taken from pages from from the pages of Society of yeah. the Snow. Yeah, yeah. There is one paragraph where Roberto Canessa mentions the word "impossible" like five, seven times in, yeah. in four lines. Yeah. And I thought this is an incredible word for the title of the Impossible. And I would I remember myself that it was very helpful in 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 getting me a good insight of what is the inner life of a character going through that survival situation. Yeah. Yeah. So I found myself uh, reading pages of the book to Naomi Watts and Tom Holland during the shoot. It was a huge influence on the impossible. And, and, and then we bought the rights um, for, for, for Society of the Snow. I didn't want to do Society of the Snow immediately after the impossible because it was... Um, it was very. It was too similar, but then it took us ten years to find the, the financing for for this film, which at the end has been like pretty good. Like because I think somehow I was way more prepared uh, after ten years to 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 shoot this film. You know, so I learned a lot doing the the other films I, I did before. So so I thought it was perfect that uh, it was perfect timing to to spend all those years thinking about the story, trying to to get what was the right perspective and also getting all the knowledge I, uh, I, I got from the other films. So what lessons did you take then from your, from your experiences on, on Jurassic World, uh, Fallen Kingdom and the Lord of the Rings uh -huh. TV show that allowed you no, to do this? More, I mean, experience all the time. Every film is a learning experience, yeah. you know? Um, I, for, uh, like, like Lord of the Rings, I mean, uh, Rings of Power. Uh, we we ha we had like very few time to prepare that show. I think I was uh, on board in August, and we were shooting in January or February, something like that. Wow! So we we had very little time to prepare a show from sc from scratch that wanted to be at the level of of the expectations you know and we had the peter jackson movies you know peter jackson had i don't know how many years to to prepare the first film we had barely eight months eight nine months wow uh to start the the, the to create those worlds from scratch uh and also i, I was very um, ambitious uh, there were many sequences that uh, there was a moment during the pre-production that the producers wanted to take out and i i begged them to keep them on because uh, i i was coming from shooting films from spain in in the independent market, so I I manage how to use the resources yeah. to make to make the to make them work. Uh, 
So they they were like 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 a couple of like one of a couple of the most spectacular scenes in in those two episodes that I I I was able to fit them in in budget and in the schedule, you know. So so that that that's the learning I got from the movies I shot in Spain, you know, of shooting the impossible, the monster calls. And the orphanage, especially the orphanage, which was made with only four million dollars. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so I, I, I knew that's always Tarantino. I think it's Tarantino who says that that's the best school shooting, shooting films with no budget. You know. Yeah. Um, so, so I was able to use that in order to to try to make the show better. You know, the Lord of the Rings, and also I think that Society of the Snow was a reaction to Jurassic World and Lord of the Rings in a sense that these are productions that are, are very measured, very controlled. Yeah. And this was like a, a project that from the very beginning we 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 knew that it was not only about telling the story but about exploring the story, about trying to really get to the essence of the story and and that meant that there was a lot of exploring um, in, improvisation. It was a lot more organic. It was more like shooting an independent film, yeah. Where where we had the chance and the luxury of uh, telling the story with the actors uh, uh, in, in a way that we were at the same time exploring it. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, and I spoke to Enzo, who plays Numa in the film. And he was telling me about that. And you've been telling me about that as well, because I've spoken to you for the magazine. But uh, about that improvisational approach, that you would have all these all these actors, hmm. and they would be c covered in snow, surrounded by snow, crammed into this very, very tight, cramped fuselage. And then you are trying to find... yeah. Moments, looks, glances, yeah. micro expressions. Yeah, it's to, it's to get to, uh, I mean, to look for gestures, images, moments in the performance that felt so truth that you get to what you really want to tell from a different perspective, not not only based on the script. You know, we worked the script for years, and and yeah. and after after that, we rehearse the script with the actors for almost two months, seven weeks. And it kind of like 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 Imar Bergman used to do that. Like 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 lock down with the actors and 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 do rehearsals and rewrite the script. This is what we did. We were rewriting the script uh, as we were doing the rehearsals, trying to make it better. And then um, the actors met the survivors, met, met the families of the disease. Yeah. So they they had a lot more information. They, not only the book, not only the all the work we did in the rehearsals, but then they met the survivors and met the families of the disease. So it it became something relevant for them. They had this responsibility of doing it right. Mm. You know, uh, their commitment with the story was bigger after meeting these people and they knew more and they established uh, a relation and, and, and during the shoot, they, they were all the time on the phone with them. So, so they had so much information that they had the tools to improvise. They knew their connections on in on in on in the story. So they knew who who they were, who they knew in the plane, what they with what they did together. You know, some of the scenes that we rehearse uh, were not scenes in the script. Were scenes that are not script are not in the script, okay. but but create a memory. 
Yes, yes. You know, and, yep. and create a, and help to establish the link and the bond between the characters, you know. Uh, so so that's the kind of work that we had the luxury to do. Uh, and, and, and then we provide them the context. So we shot in real locations with real snow. Uh, they, they, they went through a strict diet. Yeah. They shot in Spain. So that meant that the, the, the sense of the hunger, the hunger was real. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, the sense of isolation was real because they had all their families, all their girlfriends in Argentina and Uruguay, and they were in Spain. Uh, and the cold was real because we were shooting in real locations, you know? Yeah. So, so you provide them with the information and then you provide them with the context. And, and by doing so, you get to the moment of the shoot and you can improvise a lot that it doesn't matter if you change your ideas and, and do like a 180 twist on what you were planning. Yeah. That change is the result of all the work that we've done before wow. on the script on yeah. the rehearsals and in the relation with the actors you know so it's good and and that and in that sense i always tell tell the actors I, I want you to commit risk. I want you to try things. I really want you to commit mistake to to commit mistakes. I, it's okay because I prefer that than than just like 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 not trying. I I really want to get to the moment of the shoot, shoot the script, but also get something unexpected that will make it better. And in that sense, we shot a lot of material that was totally useless. That that was, but we we some of the things were like real treasures. Some of the moments that happened on set in front of the camera were real treasures. Moments where the performance goes one step beyond of what I was looking for, and that's to me the most rewarding moments when when you are in the set with the actors and something happens that you didn't expect and makes the the, the film better. Uh, give me an example. Uh, was there a, is there a particular moment that stands out for you that you weren't expecting that was so much better than you were hoping for? Yeah, I mean, for, like like there is, for example, uh, that one scene uh, at the end of the film. Uh, the um, all the survivors are taken to the hospital, and it was very interesting what happened there. I, I was uh, very. It was clearly, it was clear to me what was the last image on the film, which was this kind of like tableau. Yeah, this kind of like almost like a almost like a religious uh, scene where you can see all the survivors together in 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 one of the rooms of the hospital. Yeah, uh, that 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 came from this idea that the first thing that civilization did when they came back was to separate them. They they were taken to to single rooms. Basically, after spending 72 days creating a strong bond between them uh, together in the same room. So the first thing that they, 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 they did was to separate them, you know. And at night, they, they, they used to escape from the rooms and come along together and came along together. Because they needed to be, they needed to recreate the plane. You know, they 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 were always going to be there. You know, I only had that image. I didn't I didn't know how to get there. So I remember that like we 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 had the sets of the hospital design. Uh, we knew the locations, and then I I sent uh, the survivors an email uh, asking them uh, what what they did exactly when they were taken to the hospital. Right. 
and they gave me a lot of images that were like very interesting and I remember one that I love which was uh, from one of the survivors Roy Harley he told me my father was all the time with me all the time I mean there was even a moment I took a shower and there were two nurses with me because I couldn't stand by myself I was too weak but my father was there waiting for me in the outside with the towel you know not even in that moment uh, my father was uh, separated from me so I thought that's a beautiful image, you know? And, and then what we did, instead of shooting only that, we, we did the whole action. So we spent like, it was like a very long take, like 20 minutes, 25 minutes, wow. where Roy takes a shower with the nurses. Yeah. The father is waiting with a towel. And then the father uh, embraces the kid with the towel, helps him to, uh, I remember that uh, he cuts his... Um, the, the the nails from from his oh yes nails, yes yes yes, yes 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 uh because the actor spent four months without cutting them you know that's the kind of approach the actors did you know oh, those are his real nails yeah so i said okay. no, come on spend the time and, and let, we're, we're gonna see how he does that and there is a after like like 25 minutes the kid is there is with his father and the father is dressing his hair up and he finally feels a little calm, I feel like relaxed. And then I look at his hand and he's shaking, shaking like a baby, like a scared baby, you know? And I asked the cameraman, go, go, go slowly to that. And then I, I finished the scene in, in, in that shot. In, to me, that's the, the image that tells you wow. the story that this kid, it doesn't matter if he's with his father again and he's been taken under a, a hot water shower and, and the father is embracing him, taking care of him. That, that shot, that moment of the hand shaking tells me that the kid is still there. Yeah. And that is something that happened, really happened yeah. in, in front of the camera. And I remember I, recently I asked the actor, uh, what happened? Why, why were you shaking? I thought it, it, because it, you were cold. I, no, no, I was shaking because I was so moved about the situation that my hand was shaking. And that's a result of the 140 days of shooting, the, the two months of rehearsals, the commitment of getting in touch with the survivors and, and being really into the, 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 the story, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's what I mean. There's, there'll be like plenty of material that you will throw to the bin. But when you find that, like, like the possibility of telling the story using a very powerful image, yeah. that's to me the most rewarding uh, thing. That is extraordinary. That's absolutely extraordinary. And uh, I, I spoke to you a little bit about this when I was on set um, last year now, I guess. And uh, I, I wanted to talk about Frank Marshall's Alive and mm -hmm. how much that had an impact on what you did. You, you talk about this movie being a reaction to Fallen Kingdom, which, of course, Frank Marshall produced and, uh, yeah. and Lord of the Rings. He, yeah, yeah. Well, he's, he was always supportive. He was very nice from the very beginning. Uh, and he's been very kind. I, I just got like... Uh, a few days ago and uh, a beautiful email from Frank telling me how much he loved the film. So he's always been very kind, very supportive. I think that um, that film created an impact on a whole generation. And, and somehow that film also is the product of its time, you know, that was shot in, 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 in a studio, mm -hmm. uh, in a Hollywood studio, shot in English. Maybe it was too soon. For the especially for the families of the disease to be part of of, of a movie, so I mean they, they you know it's and maybe 
I mean, he didn't have the chance of reading Society of the Snow, which was a yeah. thought yeah. on what happened from a from from a very different perspective, you know, with the gravitas of the time that had passed. Uh, but 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 it was a very effective film at the time. I think the both films complement each other somehow. But the truth is that the 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 reason why the survivors decided to sit down with Pablo Vierzi and write another book is because they didn't recognize themselves in the tale. They didn't recognize themselves in this story. And this is not Frank Marshall movie. This is uh, is everything. It's like yeah. the, all the all the movies, all the documentaries, the books, you know, and what kept what people kept in their minds was this idea of cannibalism of the rugby team that ate each other which by the way it when you read society of the snow is that's a very small part of the story and the story is way much bigger than that and 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 what they went through is 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 such a great story on friendship on 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 this sense of camaraderie at at its best, you know. So it's it's a very different story, and 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 in that sense, I think our film was a reaction to the tale, yeah. not a reaction to J. Frank Marshall's movie, but a reaction to what kept the people kept in their minds about the story. It's interesting because I remember when that film came out in '92. Um, it, it it's a, a it's a very respectful film. It's not lurid in any way about the cannibalism. <laughs> but what I find fascinating, I mean, one of the many things I find fascinating about your movie is how unlurid, if that's a word, your approach to that aspect is. I know that was important to you going into it, that you weren't going to sensationalize it, that mm-hmm. it, it that, and that you, you, you treat it with respect when it happens. It feels completely natural and organic and you, you know, and you, you, you show it as a, almost deriving from this kind of conversation about faith. Yeah, I mean, that's what makes the story so big to me. Yeah. Uh, This kind of like spiritual, philosophical layer that it's so hard to get, to get it, get on the screen, you know, because when you, when you write a script, it's basically about dialogue and action. Every time we, we, we wrote a script, we felt the, 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 the story, was the same that we saw before. And uh, the first draft, I didn't like it. The second draft, I didn't like that. I throw them completely to the bin. Like, like this is, it's not, it's not like that. I really, I really didn't know how to get that spiritual or philosophical aspect to, to the page. And then I, I realized that we had to tell the story through the eyes of Numa. And by doing so, it was, uh, it had this metaphysical approach, you know, by telling the story through the eyes of the dead, uh, it, you are building up a fantasy that makes more sense to reality uh, and touches this spiritual level I was looking for. At the same time, uh, I was giving the chance to survivors, and that's one step beyond of what they did in the book, to talk about the dead. And by doing so, they had the chance of give them something back. The same way the dead keep them alive. Yeah. Now they had the chance of bringing back to life on the screen and put them at the same level of importance of who they are in the story. So suddenly, for the first time, it's the whole group. All of them are one. 
And that's the essence of the story. Mm -hmm. That's what I meant when I was exploring. I was thinking, what is what these guys, these, these survivors think is left? Why do they need to keep telling the story again and again and again? And I realized that it's, everything has been told already. But what they haven't done yet is to say thank you. Thank you to the people who gave them the chance to live. And that's what they're doing in the film. There's some lines at the end of the film yeah. that the voiceover says, yeah. the 22nd of December, 16 survivors came back from the mountain. Today, my voice sound with their words. And they say, we were all part of, we were all fundamental to go back. So that's what I'm doing with the with with the story, and and that was the exploration. My my intuition was taking me there, from the very first email I sent them in 2011 to the last session of the voiceover that I did with Enzo Bogrinsic, the actor. I was following my intuition, and it was taking me there to find the way of getting these people telling the story, giving them the, the dead a voice, and by doing so say thank you to them. And that's what makes the story so uplifting because it's hard, it's intense. It had to be like that because people needed to understand what they went through. But yeah. at the same time, it's a movie to say thank you. It's a movie to rescue the memory of those who were so important for them to come back. That's a, a beautiful note on which to end. Uh, Jay Bayona, it is always a pleasure having you on the podcast. That's it? Uh, we that's finished? It, that's it, that's it. <laughs> That's it. Uh, don't make it so long next time. Uh, <laughs> it's been a few years. Uh, it's a pleasure, man. Thanks so much, Nate. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, that was J.A. Bayona talking to Chris, and it is time now for reviews. Now, we should mention that Society of the Snow is out this week on Netflix. It's, we reviewed it when it was in cinemas, what, a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. Um, but uh, it is now coming to Netflix on this Friday. And I hope sometime this weekend to finally have the emotional wherewithal <laughs> to uh, to brave that film because I hear nothing but incredible things. But yes, do look out for that this week or you can read the Empire Review online or listen to us a couple of weeks ago. It but was one of our films of the year. It last was, year. yes. Uh, you know, don't, uh, don't, don't go. To, I'm saying if you're going to, if you're going to go and do it, maybe don't go to something like uh, The Electric and Notting Hill and, you know, have like dinner in a movie. You know that where you can eat while you're watching? I'm saying that's probably not the way to Yeah, to not well. not a dinner theatre no. option here. That's a very wise uh, piece of advice. But there are some other films out in cinemas this week. Uh, James, uh, do you want to start us off and tell me about Priscilla, the new film from Sofia Coppola? Yes, this is the new Sofia Coppola couple of film. It is Priscilla. So much like Elvis, it charts the life of the king. But this one from Priscilla Bolia's perspective, it is very much her story, not an Elvis story. He's mm. a supporting character in this. Uh, and it's basically her as a child, and she was very much a child, I believe she was 14, uh, when she met Elvis when he was doing his military service. She's obviously enamored by him. By that point, he was already the king of rock and roll. He was a massive star. People were screaming his name everywhere. She becomes entranced by him. He's 24 at the time, so ew. Um, but nevertheless, she is sort of sucked into his orbit. She eventually moves to Graceland with him and, as we all know, uh, ultimately married him and had a very difficult, slightly abusive marriage to Elvis Presley. And this is her story of that from going from childhood to adulthood, how she survived and ultimately left that marriage uh, and what that was like. Um, this is the most Sofia Coppola film I've ever seen. It's so her. It's very female-centric. It's very kind of like, I think Beth says in the review, it's a part of her sad girl oeuvre. And it very much is that. But it focuses on her. And it doesn't 
go anywhere quickly. It has that slightly dreamy, woozy, like, you know, like lazy summertime feel that her films tend to have. Mm. Not in a rush to get anywhere, but very much kind of reveling in the emotional texture of how she felt, what she went through, what, what her mindset was, frankly, as her hair gets increasingly huge. But it's actually very, very touching, I will say. So Kaylee Spaney here plays Priscilla. Now, she's, I think, mid-20s, and she plays the range from, uh, I think it was, I don't know where she ends. I think she begins at 14 and ends maybe late teens, early 20s. Um, but she manages to capture that arc of age beautifully. You really feel the childhood in her early on, and yet she, you you feel her come of age. You feel her take on the confidence of an adult as the film reaches its close. You do feel like you've spent all this time with her, and it's a beautifully touching, kind of quite raw performance. I, I, I thought it was wonderful. Uh, and also, it's not flashy in that... Elvis is like the most parodied character, possibly by Arnold Schwarzenegger, in history. And I think Jacob Elordi, who was obviously fantastic in Saltburn, does it brilliantly because it's not hugely mannered. It is mannered because he does put on a kind of an Elvis voice, but it's subtle, it's mm. understated, and it's not parodic. And I thought that in itself worked really, really well. Uh, and I thought the way she portrayed him in this, which is not, it's not like she marries him and he's a monster. It's that gradual falling, slipping of the mask, that gradual, yeah. he's charming, he's less charming. A pillow fight at one point becomes abusive because he doesn't like that she hit him too hard. And it's just like, and it's that gradual, and the gaslighting him, his constant threats to discard her and replace her with someone else. The fact that he's clearly cheating on her all the time. Mm. Like, it's awful what it does to her psychologically and you do feel like you're in her head and you're accompanying her on that journey so I thought I thought that aspect of it worked, worked really well yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It's this sort of just controlling relationship and, and you sense from obviously the, the get-go when she is a child and he is the biggest star in the world, mm. you have this enormous unbridgeable power differential between them. And that does shrink by the end of the film because you sense her taking her own power and taking her own place in the world. But it really is uh, a journey for her to get there. And it is one that she takes very much despite not because of him. And yet I don't feel like he's made into a one-dimensional monster. You also get the sense that he is malformed, deformed by mm. what fame has done to him, fame at a young age. You know, there's that old saw about you, you kind of freeze, your your development freezes at the age you become famous. And, and it feels like that for him. He feels like the reason he bonds initially with this kid is because he's still a kid on some level but on other very important levels he is not a kid yeah you know so it's a, it's a really interesting psychological study of both and and also i mean this is a very small point and i, I guess it's sort of not something the ac actors can really take credit for because it's just the way they are but like kaylee spaney is a very small woman yes. and jacob lordy is an enormously tall man and and it does have this sense of him looming over her all the time which i thought was genuinely really effective even though it's just that's just the way things are but yeah. it worked really really well it's also a film that is completely lacking in elvis music it Which is, is because it's 100% about, El and I was going to say Elvis's private life, but that's it. It's not his no. private life. It is Priscilla's story and her vision of Elvis, the side of Elvis that she saw was his personal life, not his public persona. So exactly right. There's none, no Elvis music and there's a very, almost, there's only one bit of Elvis live performance and it's not what you would expect. Mm. It's shot from behind. Like it's a very different take on that. And it's because that's not what this is about. This is the Elvis she knew, not the Elvis, I would say we knew, I'm not that old, but, but the, the public yeah. knew. Yeah. And I think that 
also works really well. But as you say, like that height differential, that power differential is huge. And so many things in this film are really jarring. The fact that she's literally at school mm. when they meet and four years afterwards. And he's talking to her dad saying, you know, one, well, make sure she graduates. Yeah, she's going to go to school. So she's she's spending her nights with Elvis at Graceland and then going to school in uniform in the morning. And there's a part where he's like, ew, 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 ew. Ew. Yeah. It, it's it's a fascinating double bill, I think, with Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. Mm. I, I really would recommend watching both, you know, sort of together. It sent me down a massive rabbit hole of researching more about Priscilla Presley, <laughs> who, of course, like I remember vaguely from uh, Dallas, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. yeah. She I, I was thinking about that this morning. Yeah. She was in second uh, career. She was in the Naked Gun films. Yes. Um, and this was nice, stuff Beaver. She... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thanks, I just had... Never mind. Um, <laughs> but th- she had all this, this whole second life and, and third life and everything after after these years. But it's a fascinating, fascinating portrait of a life. Um, so yeah, we gave this one... We gave this four stars, four which stars. I think is very well deserved. Absolutely. Uh, but as said, you know you know what you're getting when you go to a so- Sophia Coppola film. Uh, and, you know, 100 miles an hour, it is not. But if you're, if you're willing to kind of sit back and let it wash over you, it is mm. very rewarding. It really is. So that's four stars for Priscilla. So also out this week is One Life which is uh, the new film from director James Hawes, um, who is making his debut feature with this one. And he's gotten a hell of a cast, I've got to say. It's it's kind of... You've got to wonder where he's going to go from here because this one has Anthony Hopkins and Johnny Flynn kind of sharing the role of Nicholas Winton mm. um, with Helen Bonham Carter as his mother, by which I mean she plays him in the Johnny Flynn time period. Just to be clear, she's not Anthony Hopkins' mum. Jonathan Price, by the way, also plays one of his friends, Romila Garai, one of his friends in earlier times. So, Nicholas Winton, as a young banker just prior to World War II, was out in Eastern Europe and saw the plight of mostly Jewish children who were threatened, essentially, by the Nazi advance into Eastern Europe and started trying to organise visas to take them to the UK. So this was the kinder transport. Yeah. He didn't he didn't initiate it, but he was one of the key figures in getting hundreds of children out of Eastern Europe ahead of the Nazi advance and basically saving their lives from the Holocaust. We kind of skip and hop between the Johnny Flynn time period where he is basically frantically doing paperwork. It's like that one scene in that Jack Ryan film with the dueling printers. <laughs> it's a little bit like that, but with passport stamps. And we skip between that and and then the life of the much older Nicholas Winton in the 1980s, uh, who is sort of, he's just haunted by regret. He All he can see of his past when he looks back is the things he didn't accomplish, is the people he didn't get out, is the train that was stopped at the border when the war broke out. And that is all he can think about. Through the course of the film, I mean, look, if people remember the story of this man, if you Google this man at all, you will know what happened. Mm. But basically, he is brought face to face with his success. And it is devastatingly emotional. I can, I'm tearing up just thinking about it. I will say, though, that's because of Nicholas Winton. That's because of the real life facts of this case. Yeah. As a film, this is totally fine. It is well-performed. It is well-made. I don't think it's an extraordinary film that's going to change your life, but it is a lovely reminder of of human goodness as well as human evil and the capacity that we all have to maybe do more than we think we do. You know. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, very, very good performances did get me at the end. Really, I, I don't want to sell it short. It really did move me, but I, I don't maybe think that the film itself is changing the world. You know? Yeah. 
this is kind of what I've heard that is performances over content a little bit. They're great performances from Flynn and Hopkins, as yeah. you would expect. Absolutely. But, but maybe not the, you know, must see experience that you want to kick off 2024 with. No, I think that's that's probably true. We gave it we gave it three stars. Kalechi of this parish uh gave it three stars. Um and and does point out, you know, the overfamiliarity of some of the beats of the story, which is which is true. But you know, really good performances. You're, you're not going to go wrong with Johnny Flynn and Anthony Hopkins, are you? So yeah, three stars then for One Life. A recommendation. It is. So finally, in the reviews section this week, we have Night Swim, also in cinemas. This is the new film from Bryce McGuire, uh, written by McGuire with Rod Blackhurst and based on a very short film that McGuire made that went viral in something like 2014. Mm. It is out there on YouTube. I is, had a look this week. Is this the most upsettingly scary James Wan water film available in cinemas at the moment, Helen? That's the question. <laughs> I still haven't seen Aquaman. I'm going this weekend, so I will tell you. Save yourself! Um, but yeah, this is this is a really... This is kind of a clever conceit, I think, for a film. It's basically, what if a swimming pool was haunted? We've had haunted houses, we've had haunted spaceships, but... We haven't had a lot of haunted swimming pools. So what we have here is that Ray and Eve Waller, played by Wyatt Russell and Kerry Condon, uh, respectively, move into a new house. So they need to move because he is a professional baseball player who has uh, fallen ill and is no longer able to keep playing. He's trying to get back to some level of health where he can keep playing ball, but it looks unlikely. So they and their two children find this house with a swimming pool and it seems ideal. He can do water therapy. You know, the kids can sort of practice their swimming. Uh, she can unwind in the pool. It's all going to be fantastic. They fix up the house. They clean up the pool, uh, which has been left to rot for some reason. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder why. I wonder why. And then wouldn't you know it, it turns out that the pool is haunted and strange things start to happen. Um, now, this has a little bit of, I don't want to say too much about some of the stuff that happens in this. I will say I felt a lot of it coming. I felt a lot of the story beats were a little bit overfamiliar, maybe from things I'd seen in the past. There are certain kind of family dynamics that you will probably see coming. <laughs> My prediction for this film was that someone's hair would get sucked into the little intakey thing. Because that's the thing that I was always, when I had hair, scared of in cinema, <laughs> in, in, in swimming pools. There is a bit with hair in a, in a intakey thing, but it's not maybe in the way Ghost you Ghost hair. <gasps> I, no, no comment. Okay. No comment. But it, it does kind of tap into that fear that I think we all have, ultimately, of, of water. Like, you know, we're, we're all kind of aware that something could come for us here, that it's not Aquaman. our native Aquaman could come for us. It's not our native environment. There there are there are scary things in the water. And like, I don't know about you, but I've had it even in swimming pools where I could clearly see the whole pool. You know, you can clearly <laughs> see that there's nothing in there, but you're like, but what if there was? Well, this is because we grew up watching, I don't know, Poltergeist and Alligator. Do you remember the scene in Alligator where no. she's on the diving board and there are no lights in the pool <gasps> and then goes on and jumps off the diving board oh, and no. then the lights come on and you see that the alligator's in the pool and it's like... Arr. Ah! Yeah. No, I didn't. I don't. I have not seen that, and I'm, I'm not yeah, that, I'm traumatized. Almost, I'm certain it. that is alligator. It's not Lake Placid because that happens in Lake Placid, mm. not a swimming pool. So yeah, it's alligator. I mean, like the, the, it, I'm just saying, like sometimes we, I also grew up with Jaws. You know, like it's not the, well, you're, you're, salt water, so you'd be fine. It's true. Well, what if this is a nat natural water pool? That's true. Anyway, I, I was scared. Now, obviously, usual caveat. 
I'm a scaredy cat, right? <laughs> but um, but I was scared and it did make me jump a few times. And there were lots of times where I was sort of crawling up on myself in the seat going, oh no, oh, something scary is going to happen any second. Oh, I don't like it. Oh, no, scary things. But I thought it was pretty effective. Like I say, I kind of saw where the story was going mm. at a few key moments, which is a bit of a shame. Did you see it in a crowded screening room? I saw it in a screening room f- with about eight other Well, that's ideal, really, because Night Swim deserves a quiet night. Hey, thank you, R.E.M., for that one. Yeah, but I saw it with Ben Travis of this parish, who is literally writing the review as we are recording this. That is true. So um, he was amused by my jumping about. Do Do you want to know what he said? Please. Ben has texted me to say, apart from the ending that annoyed me, it's mostly, block capitals, very good, four stars. Four stars. All right. I was probably going to go three. I did enjoy it. And I think in particular, Kerry Condon and Wyatt Russell were really good in it. Really, mm. really good. Um, I, I, Ben and I discussed this. We have some of the same issue with the ending, but it would be massively spoilerific to talk about, so I'm not going to. But um, but really, really good performances. I should also give credit where it's due to the to the younger members of the cast. So, Emily Hoferl, I apologise for my pronunciation, is their daughter Izzy, and Gavin Warren is their son Elliot. They're both very good as well. Um, but um, but yeah, it's really very much centred on Russell and Condon, and they're both super good. So yeah, this is this is a James Wan, Jason Blumhouse production. You kind of know what you're getting. You're yes. getting a solid horror movie and we are giving this four stars four stars a heated swimming pool <laughs> naturally heated actually yeah. is it it is naturally how does one naturally heated? heat a swimming pool you tap into a heated spring of the ground is that a thing it is now okay but yeah no it is it's like bath oh yeah i know well yeah I, but I just assume that, like, in a. It, I, I meant bath the town, by the way. Not my bath. Confused, I, know, I do I not have a, a naturally have, heated bath. Like, good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But but I you know I just I never realised that people would have like a bar like a like a swimming pool in their back garden that's like heated by thermal springs. Apparently, it's a thing. I guess. So there we go. So that is all for this week. Next week, we are going to be joined not only by Chris, who will hopefully be back from his holiday by then, but by every star in Hollywood. Excellent. Let me give you a breakdown here, James. (laughs) That is to say, we have George Actual Clooney. Wow. We have Callum Genuine Turner. Wow. Bit smaller star, but nevertheless. We have Kevin Are You Kidding Me Hart. (laughs) We have Goo Goo Dear God in Bathara. And we have Dan, can you believe it, Levy. That's a pretty good week. That is a freaking great week. They are going to be talking respectively about the boys in the boat, the boys in the boat, lift, lift, and good grief. Wow. Amazing. This is one of these classic things where like, Chris, do we have a guest for this week? And Chris will be like, yeah, one or two. (laughs) (laughs) I've interviewed everyone in Hollywood. It's going to be pretty good. (sighs) I'm excited about this. Me too. Until then, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from James. Goodbye, Helen. What's happening on the Pilot What's TV that? podcast this week? It's James? funny you ask. We've got Clark Peters on the Pilot TV podcast. Ooh. The Clark Peters from Foundation. Hooray. Also The Wire. Uh, but he's going to be on talking about his new show, True Love. Uh, what are we reviewing this week? We are reviewing the second season of Jack Rook's Big Boys, which is a great comedy. We are reviewing After the Flood, starring Sophie Rundle. And finally, we're uh, reviewing the new Apple show, Criminal Record, which stars Kush Jumbo and the one and only Peter Capaldi. Ooh. Yeah. So it should, be a fun, should be a fun time. Should be a fun time. Well, that is all from us. It's a goodbye from me as well. I'm off to dig up some more old Norse gods. Yeah. Thor versus Steamboat Willie. Oh, no. Make it happen. No, don't. <laughs> <laughs>